one, or two, or three, or four, but five, force five. Welcome to the Force Five podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie themed five list and then we talk about our picks on air. I'm your host, Kleberg, and today my guests are Nick and Jordan, the hosts of Film Shake, the 90s movie podcast. How's it going, guys? Hey, doing pretty good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start with Jordan. Well, I am a librarian. I work for the Public Library in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I host the Film Shake podcast with Nick. And I am an accountant. I work not that far from where Jordan does. And yes, we host Film Shake together. We're in, I guess we just hit a year since we started covering 90s movies. We've been around for about a year and a half now. Yeah, it's been really fun. So when we think about favorite movies, are they all from the 90s? Or uh, do you have influences and favorites from other from other decades? Well, we have a, uh, a pact on the show, which is the 90s are the only decade that have ever existed the only <laughs> films only films exist from the 90s so by nature of that all our favorite movies have to be from the 90s but no not really i'm just just pulling your leg um <laughs> yeah so favorite movies for me i would say uh i'm a really big jim jarmusch fan so dead man uh strangers in paradise uh, those kind of films are up there for me uh coen brothers like fargo big lebowski uh great stuff there yeah, none of my favorites are, are from the 90s. I mean, I love the 90s. Overall, if I made a giant list, most of the films would probably be from the 90s. But my top three are Vertigo, which I think was 58, uh, Winter Light, directed by Emar Bergen from 1963, and then The Empire Strikes Back from 1980. Well, today we are going to be tackling some 90s films. And just like you, you talk about the amazing and the trash that sometimes are in the same movie and i have right. plenty of that on my list today oh good 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 we're gonna be doing five 90s sci-fi flicks from each of us so we're gonna be digging into the past but first we're gonna be talking about what we've been watching so i guess i'll go first i watched a documentary this week and it's from somebody who was highly featured in the 90s it's a documentary that just came out. It's called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Oh, oh wow. Yes. Nice. I, nice. I saw something about this. I read an interview with Arquette, and this looks really good. Have you guys covered any David Arquette films on your podcast? Because he was around really during the 90s. I don't think we have. I've been really jonesing to go back and watch Scream lately, which I'll probably do pretty soon. And at some point we should get to it on the show. But no, I don't think he's been featured in any of the films we've covered. David Arquette is one of these actors who was part of the new Hollywood in the early to mid 90s. He was even on a cover of Vanity Fair with people like Leonardo DiCaprio as part of this new class. His career did not obviously go in the same direction as a lot of those guys. And this documentary follows him now. And it's kind of a story of redemption. So he was obviously in Scream, like you said. He was in movies like Never Been Kissed. And in 2000, he was in a little movie called Ready to Rumble. Have you guys seen Ready to Rumble, the wrestling movie? I don't think I have. It's been a long time. But yes, I have. It was really, really a bad movie. But it was at the height of wrestling's popularity. 
a lot of WCW wrestlers, if you're a wrestling fan, WCW was one of the two main wrestling companies at the time. They wanted to expose their wrestlers to the movie side of things, and they wanted coverage on their own end. And so they brought David Arquette in for a wrestling angle. During that angle, David Arquette comes in and wins the WCW Heavyweight Championship in a match. This is going to go perfectly into what what I'll talk about with what I watched, actually. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So David Arquette, in the year 2000, wins the WCW title, which, you know, wrestling is goofy and it's entertainment. But at the same time, there are a ton of people that take this seriously. And you have all these fans and you have all these wrestlers that are furious to the point where, you know, he's going out in public and people are trying to fight him and spit on him because he didn't earn this title that a lot of these wrestling fans feel is so prestigious. Over time, he's just kind of felt terrible about this. And in about 2017, 2018, he's going through some kind of mental issues and some physical issues. And he decides that he wants to redeem himself by getting back into wrestling to prove that he can do it. Wow. And this is the story about how much he went through to become a legitimate wrestler and win those fans back. And it is a fantastic documentary. I was not a huge David Arquette fan before, but I have the utmost respect for what he did and wrestling fans probably feel the same there's Mm. some gnarly stuff in here if you're not familiar with wrestling there's these death matches which are not so much wrestling as just two guys beating the shit out of each other with anything you can think of i mean there's barbed wire like our show actually (laughs) (laughs) except instead of using films they're using uh light tubes (laughs) The, the things he does to his body are insane. And I, I, I won't spoil what happens in one of these death matches, but just be prepared that if, you, if you're squeamish when it comes to blood and violence, you're going to cover your eyes during at least one scene. It's, it's really crazy. I, but I really enjoyed this documentary. I highly recommend it. It's on uh, video on demand now. You can rent it on iTunes. Definitely worth it. That sounds really interesting. I, I've not heard of that documentary, so I'll have to go check that out. Speaking of the 90s, I have not been watching as many 90s movies lately. I've actually been getting back into some 80s films, and I've been getting into John Carpenter lately. This is a director that I always kind of shied away from growing up. I wasn't a big horror movie fan. I guess I was kind of squeamish and uh, just shied away from it. It wasn't really my thing. And, you know, I can I can take campy here and there. But, you know, for a while there, it was only prestigious dramas and criterion collection and that kind of stuff. But lately, I think with the 90s show, it's just opened up the ridiculous side of my brain. So I'm going I've gone back and watched like six John Carpenter movies in the last week or so. He's had quite an awakening. Yes, uh, my my gorehound has been awakened, as Nick would say. So I've watched The Thing, They Live, Halloween, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, amongst others. And I was really surprised by Halloween. I had thought I'd seen it before growing up. And I feel like it's such a part of our pop culture that it just kind of seeps into your psyche if you've seen it or not. You know, Michael Myers and all the sequels, like it's hard to get away from. But watching the film, you know, from front, to end for the first time probably ever i would say now that i've you know watched it i don't think i'd ever actually seen it 
I was really surprised. Uh, there was a lot of craft to this film I was not expecting. So like you have the long POV shot in the beginning from Michael Myers perspective. That was really cool. I was, I did not remember that at all. Had had no idea, you know, that it would open up like that and that you'd have this long tracking shot through the house. So that was really interesting to see, uh, the slow burn throughout most of the film. And then the, you know, really frightening last 20 minutes. Uh, it, yeah, it was legitimately scary and, and just really well-made well told really appreciate John Carpenter's direction there. Also watched they live. And that was my, uh, my one wrestling, uh, connection with what you just <laughs> talked about with uh, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper. <laughs> yeah. So that was hilarious and uh, so fun, so goofy and uh, can't get enough of it. So going to continue watching lots more Carpenter films. That's great. I'm really pumped because now we've got this new Halloween series that's out that pretty much disregards everything after the first Halloween movie. So I'm kind of excited, Jordan. You watched the first one. I feel like you liked it about as much as I do. It's one of my favorite horror movies ever. And we had the David Gordon Green one. I think that was 2018 that came out that takes place in the future from that movie, kind of disregarding all the winding mythology of the films that came afterward. And of course it ends on a cliffhanger and they're making another one. So Jordan, I'm really pumped. Now you got to watch that one. Hopefully COVID dries up by the time the sequel comes out, we can go together. I'm so excited. Cool. And as you get into horror movies, you're going to see how many of them were inspired by Halloween because it really kicked off like the whole slasher genre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that I never saw horror movies growing up. I think I watched more, oddly enough, when I was younger and in middle school. And then I guess I got a little too uh, prestigious as I grew up and I was like, no, and a little squeamish. So it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to move off the over whistling. here. The wussening. <laughs> That'd be a great parody horror movie. That's the one good thing about 2020. The wussening has ended. Jordan's ready for some horror movies. All right. What about you, Nick? So I just watched HBO's Watchmen series. It's a limited series. It was only nine episodes. It was created by Damon Lindelof. And of course, it's following up on the famous comics by Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, which we already got a movie in 2009 based on the events of the comics this is in the future of that. And I just have to say, Damon Lindelof, I've got a really strange relationship to. I think all of the stuff he does that people hate, I love. And all the stuff he does that people love, I hate. Case in point, Lost. Love that show. Love the ending. Actually, the one time I've been out to your neck of the woods in California in the past decade, I went to see a live performance by Michael Giacchino of The Lost Score. And I think it was at the Hollywood Bowl. All I remember, because it was incredible and it was just a huge emotional experience, is that there was a freak windstorm that blew the TV screen down or the movie oh. screen down because it was like an 80 mile an hour gust from out of nowhere. It just trashed it. It blew all the instrument stands over and it just made it better somehow. <laughs> but all that to say, when I like Damon Lindelof stuff, I really like it. I dug The Hunt earlier this year, which I know a lot of people hated and I really think a lot of people didn't get but he did this show called The Leftovers a few years ago on HBO that most people seem to love. It's really one of the most heralded, heralded, that's a tough word for me always. Let's say heralded, that's what we do on Film Shake when we can't say it. We're just add a lot of at the end of it. It's a really heralded show, and I hated it. 
I hated The Leftovers. I liked the second season a little bit, but for some reason, everything about that show infuriated me. I hated even the opening theme song, like that little folk song in the second season just pissed me off. Like I was like having to punch a pillow or something when it played if I didn't skip through it. So I started skipping through it because I started running out of pillows. But (laughs) You destroyed all the pillows in your house watching that show. Yes, it was like the whole show was created just to give me what I didn't want and not give me what I did want. It made me so mad. So I was really hesitant to watch this new Watchmen series. A lot of people I know that enjoyed The Leftovers, recommended it to me, which made me more hesitant. But when it got nominated for like 80 billion Emmys a few weeks ago, I decided, okay, I'll give in. I'll watch it. It's only nine episodes. And I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. It's uh, it's maybe not quite where I would go from the past comics, and it actually probably hangs out a little too much with some of those older characters. But overall, it's really solid. It brings in a, a lot of things that are going on today, shockingly timely, because, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure when it went into production, but it was just a really timely series. Great performance by Regina King, especially Tim Blake Nelson. I don't want to really give anything away, just that it happens in the future of the Watchmen universe there's very little from the comics that it negates. I think if you're a fan of the comics, but you're the kind of person that if anything in a comic book property gets changed at all in an adaptation, you want to go back in time and stop yourself from being born so that you never watched it. Don't watch this, but if you're cool with some changes, maybe watch this, you know, and if you don't know anything about Watchmen and you just like decent sci-fi, give it a watch. It's pretty good. It's basically a direct sequel to the graphic novel. The movie's a lot different than the graphic novel, so don't go into the Watchmen series thinking it's a sequel to the movie because you're going to miss a lot. Most definitely. And I certainly think it's better than that movie, which definitely made some big changes to the comic. Some were okay. Some were unforgivable. There's nothing like that here. There are a few things tonally, I think, maybe with some of the decisions that... Adrian Veidt, some of his decisions I thought were a little out of character from what we got in the comics, but they're not things where I just wanted to turn it off or punch more pillows, which actually I don't have anymore because of the leftovers. But if I had had more pillows, I would not have punched them. I was not that angry about it. Nick sleeps on stone because of the leftovers. Thanks a lot, Damon. I'm just excited to see this for Tim Blake Nelson. I just I love him and everything I've seen. That's true. I, you know what? I would recommend it to you just based on that. I know you like him as an actor and I enjoy him too. And he just gives a really t- Tim Blake Nelson performance in this. It's about the most Tim Blake Nelson of a performance I've seen. Nice. I'm all in for that. All right. Well, let's get into our list. We went back to the 90s. The 90s were such a weird time for sci-fi. Like the technology was getting a lot better with computers. And I feel like a lot of movies in the 90s just said, hey, we can do stuff. Let's just throw it all in a movie and we'll see what happens. (laughs) There are so many bad 90s sci-fi movies, but I was able to pull out five good ones. Which of you picked the topic for sci-fi movies? That would be me. I really love sci-fi as a genre. I think it offers a lot of uh, interesting questions to going to take you out of your normal situation and put you in a mode where you can examine the human experience. And I think we'll see that in a lot of the films that we get into, or at least the films and the thoughts that I have on the five that I chose. But when it comes down to it, it's good schlocky fun. It, you know, it offers a lot of action, uh, a lot of just uh, interesting innovation. So it, it can be fun, but I can also get into it in a cerebral 
way. So I appreciate it for, I guess, that spectrum that you can have with it where you can just turn off your brain and have fun, especially in the 90s. But you can also kind of dive deeper into the human experience and what does it mean to be human and those kind of questions. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Most of my films have very similar themes, which I'll get into when I get into my list, for sure. And I also wanted to note, too, whenever I was making mine, I made a dividing line between sci-fi and what I consider speculative fiction. Because a movie like The Truman Show, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. But I don't know. I just can't consider it a sci-fi. I know there are some publications that have it on the near the top of their list for sci-fi, but I just don't think of it that way or say face off, which is a pretty high concept movie. I still think of that more as a speculative fiction. Really. I just think of that as a balls out insane action movie, (laughs) (laughs) but maybe you guys have movies like that on your list. But when I made mine, I left off movies in that vein. I have one that uh, I'll get into later on, but yeah, for the most part, I tried to stay, I tried to be open, you know, to include those that I really wanted to include. But for the most part, I wanted to look at sci-fi films that were, you know, pretty hard sci-fi or, you know, very obviously overtly sci-fi. Yeah, I have one on my list that's kind of strays from that, but the rest are really sci-fi based. I also tried to, to think of plots that revolved around the science fiction aspect. Let's get into the list. Uh, Jordan, hit us with your number five. 1990s sci-fi movie. All right. This is uh, no surprise, not a deep cut or anything, but this would be 93's Jurassic Park, which, you know, most people love and have seen. I don't know what else to say that hasn't already been said about this movie, uh, but for me, it still holds up, you know, so many years later. I remember this as one of my first theater going experiences as a kid. I remember being so scared by the raptors especially i mean the t-rex you know was huge is awesome really memorable scenes i don't know how, you know how many times i've gone back and watched the t-rex like chewing up the car but the <laughs> raptors are so like agile and quick that you know when the two kids are being chased by them in the kitchen scene i remember in the theater uh, going to see this and going to the bathroom on purpose at that scene so i because i was too scared And then when I came back to the theater, I was purposefully looking through the window in the door of the of the theater and to check if anything scary was happening. And that's right when the raptor pops up in the window of one of the doors in the park. (laughs) I think it's when he's breathed like the breath is blowing on the window. And it was like the raptor was right there waiting for me. So that was pretty awesome. Very memorable moment for me growing up, you know, formative experience. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it's, it's tons of fun. You know, there's groundbreaking effects that are still enjoyable today. Uh, you know, and it's a great cautionary tale not to mess with nature that uh, the franchise apparently just could not learn from, just continues turning out that stuff. It's amazing to me now when I watch the sequels that, uh, you know, yet you all these people die, yet you're still building this theme park. <laughs> right. People are still letting you do this. What is what is the matter? with Got to make that money, people? man. I guess so. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Like you said, Jason, just like with the 90s special effects, just because you can try to portray these things with horrible CGI doesn't mean you should. (laughs) Now, Nick, are you saying that the CGI in Jurassic Park is horrible? Oh, no. Oh, no. It looks better than CGI in some modern movies, really. I I agree. It's, uh, It's pretty amazing how well it stands up. That's one of the cool things about Jurassic Park is that it's just timeless. The... 
because they did a lot of practical effects and just use CGI to kind of help those out in most cases. And right. I think it really shows. And that is a great uh, point to bring up too for the nineties, especially. And for just that period of the nineties where they're still using practical effects, but using CJ when they need to, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I agree. I think that's what makes the film really timeless. I really, you know, we'll hear later on, but I, yeah, I'm a really big fan of practical effects and uh, kind of much to my chagrin that a lot of those have gone away. But yeah, it's great to see both of those being utilized when they need, you know, when they need to be. That's 1993's Jurassic Park. That's a, just a great pick. Uh, Nick, what do you got for your number five? My number five pick, and Jordan may have this one on his list too. I'm going to wager a guess from previous conversations that we've had, but it's 1995's 12 Monkeys, which is directed by Terry Gilliam and inspired by Chris Marker's 1962 short film. I can't pronounce words from other languages that well, but I'm just going to say La Jetie. It's actually a short film made up of photographs. And I honestly have to say, when I was younger, I think this movie would have been a little higher on my list, but I watched Le Jetie at one point and realized, wow, it's it's 12 Monkeys. I think it was more than inspired by this. <laughs> I think 12 Monkeys really just is this. Um, right. But I still love the movie. I still think it's really good. And really, it touches upon a lot of the themes that I think probably Jordan and I both love about 90 sci-fi films, but I know I do in particular, they really explored the nature of memory, the nature of reality and identity. I think that was really a focal point in the nineties with just new technologies that we were dealing with uh, different kind of fears that we were having. And this movie definitely touches upon that. You've got this Bruce Willis character who gets sent back into the past over and over again to try to figure out what went wrong and how a virus killed the majority of humanity. It's just a really cool movie. It's got that Terry Gilliam kind of bizarro, almost carnival-esque style. Uh, there's this cool French music playing in the background a lot of times with uh, like accordion and stuff. I enjoy it. Also, there's a reference to Vertigo, which I mentioned earlier is my favorite movie which I enjoy a lot until I realized that reference is also in La Jatie, which uh, now I feel like I'm damning 12 monkeys instead of praising it. I really do enjoy the movie. One of <laughs> Bruce Willis's best performances, some of Terry Gilliam's best direction, great visuals. It's a great movie. I enjoy it. Number five for me, 12 monkeys. It's uh, it's not on my list, but I also considered it as an honorable mention. Really love 12 monkeys and La Jatie. Actually, this would have been on my also rans as well. The only reason I didn't put it on here is because I talked about it recently on a different episode. Have either one of you seen the 12 Monkeys TV series? I was going to ask you guys. I have not seen that. I have not either. I have. And I was I went in really nervous because most of the time when you see a TV show based on a movie, it's not great. There are very few exceptions, but this was really good. And okay. It sounds like you're big fans. You would definitely love the TV series. All right. Well, I'm going to get into my number five here, which is my least sci-fi centric. And I'm just going to throw it out at the top here because you already brought it up. Face Off from 1997. Cool. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll allow it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to read the description because it is wild. John Travolta plays Sean Archer who is tracking down his nemesis and the man who killed his son, Caster Troy, played by Nicolas Cage. And this is peak Nicolas Cage. This yes, is indeed. All the memes that you see about Nicolas Cage, 90% of them are from this. <laughs> right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Caster Troy, he's left 
in a coma after a battle with police. But there's one problem. He planted a bomb somewhere in L.A. and his brother is the only one who knows where it is. So in order to get the brother to give up the location, secret agent Sean Archer, he undergoes a secret high tech procedure to have Caster Troy's face grafted onto his own. And then he's going to go undercover as Caster Troy. But the real Caster Troy wakes up from his coma and has Archer's face grafted onto his. You've got Nicolas Cage acting like John Travolta, trying to act like Nicolas Cage. (laughs) It's bonkers. There's a prison with magnet boots. And those boots, by the way, those boots are the boots from Super (laughs) Mario Brothers, the movie. Oh, wow. Oh, I thought they looked familiar. There's so many magnet boots in the 90s, I'll tell you. I just watched Event Horizon the other day. More magnet boots. Oh, yeah. That's going to get a mention (laughs) later. They're ubiquitous in the 90s. Magnet boots are the Skechers of the 90s. I don't know why I said Skechers. Everybody doesn't wear Skechers. They're really comfortable. Everyone should. They're the Jinko jeans of movies. You've got John Woo directing. And this, again, you got Maximum Cage and you got Maximum John Woo. There's doves everywhere. There's dual wielding everywhere. There's face, literal face-offs, like standoffs with guns. And they just stand there and point guns at each other, but they don't shoot ever. Long monologues you know, oh. while they're pointing guns at each other. Man, so whenever whenever I was in college, you know, they always did those college poster sales. And I got an awesome black and white poster of the the two main actors. You know, the famous shot where they're pointing the guns at each other while they're looking in a mirror. And it's just incredible. There really are some great shots in this movie. It was a gigantic black and white poster, which I put in my college apartment. So I moved home uh, before I got married and I put it up in my old room. So years later, you know, I, I'm, I have a son now that's uh, he's about to turn 11. But when he was a baby, my mom would keep him in that room. And the poster was still in there. <laughs> and I came in one one day and he was down for a nap. And I just saw Nick Cage and John Travolta holding guns above him. <laughs> and I took it down. It's it's in the closet. <laughs> but I love that movie so much. I need to get that poster back and, and put it in my bedroom closet. I think my wife will dig it. Just for the way that Nick Cage says face and then he holds his hand in front of his face and then off and then he moves his hand away from his face. Classic. Oh, and then the shootout set to somewhere over the rainbow, you know, in slow-mo while while the kids just uh, listening to the song and bodies and blood and bullets and feathers are flying everywhere. Only John Woo. Only John Woo. John Woo is so great. In the penthouse of the main, like, gun running supplier who went on to direct the notebook in 2004 no way yeah that's uh nick cassavetes who went on to direct the notebooks so oh yeah wildly. i forgot that was nick cassavetes wow nice catch that's awesome <laughs> that is awesome in terms of the sci-fi of this movie you have this procedure which they literally just do a little laser around your face and then pull it off like our faces <laughs> are just kind of sitting on top of our skulls and then they changed the voice with a microchip in, in quotes. What? <laughs> you have your entire face removed, replaced with somebody else. And all of a sudden, your body also kind of changes. Who knows how that happens? Right. Because the physicality of John Travolta and Nick Cage is exactly the same. So all they have to do is swap faces, right? <laughs> well, yeah, not to get too vulgar, but you know, what, this came out when I was in high school. And my first thought whenever they insinuate that the new John Travolta is now sleeping with the old John Travolta's wife. I just got confused even describing that. But anyway, 
you know, all, all guys' junk is not the same. But I guess these two guys' junk <laughs> is slash are the same because his wife is never like, hey, something's different down there. <laughs> and they have these entire procedures and within maybe 30 minutes, they're up and ready to go. <laughs> right, oh, right. I'm good. <laughs> no scars, nothing. I'm ready. Wipe the blood off. You know what this conversation has taught me? I need to go back and rewatch Face Off right now. <laughs> Sorry, the show. I, see you guys. I gotta, go I, gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go. Later. See you, Jordan. But I love Face Off, and that's from 1997. Definitely going to cover that on the show at one point on Film Shake. I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. My number four is Total Recall. Starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, the original Total Recall, of course, from 1990. I love Total Recall. Uh, we did a whole episode on this movie, so definitely check that out. But this is adapted from a Philip K. Dick story. But instead of our hero being a mild-mannered accountant from Dick's story, we've got Arnold freaking Schwarzenegger as a totally jacked-up construction worker whose memories have been erased and replaced. So he's going up to a business called Total Recall that implants memories for a fee. He wants to have a, a memory of Mars implanted in his mind. And he ends up on a secret mission, secret agent mission on Mars. And it's really over the top in all the best ways. It's very 80s in a, in a lot of ways uh, with lots of practical effects, which I said I love. I love the effects in this movie. And the scene that sticks out to me that Nick might want to deride, so don't listen to him, is where Arnold is dressed up like a large elderly lady trying to get onto Mars, and he's in this suit, and then the head comes apart in the, in the middle into sections, revealing Arnold's squished face underneath. And then the head turns into a bomb that he then throws at the police. And what's the line, Nick? The line is... Get ready for a surprise. Oh, yeah. now, it's awesome. Don't now, believe anything that Nick could says. Only, it's great. He could only say two weeks in a high-pitched voice up to that point. He didn't think to give himself other lines. The only other line he programmed was, get ready for a surprise. That scene is so superfluous. I love that movie, except that one That's scene. That's all he needed to get away. But yeah, I love uh, Verhoeven, the director, how he plays with memory Arnold's character, Quaid, he's convinced he's really the secret agent, but somehow his erased memories have come to light during the procedure, and it's unleashed his true secret agent badass self. But I love how Verhoeven plays with that, where you're often throughout the film wondering what's real and what's fake. Maybe it's all a dream. Who knows? It's great. It, it, and it, yeah, it has all those sci-fi themes that I really love uh, playing around with memory and with identity and all those kind of things. So if you have not seen 1990s Total Recall, definitely check it out. There's a scene in this movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes outside in space and is, it's been a long uh, time since oh, I've seen yeah. it, but his face like blows up and his eyes pop out of his head. Yes. So Gnarly, good. Yeah. scared me so much as a kid. Which is amazing that two seconds before that happens in the film, the bad guy is thrown outside in space and he just completely combusts. But then <laughs> while Arnold is combusting and his eyes are popping out of his head, suddenly the Mars atmosphere turns into a breathable atmosphere and Arnold's okay. So yeah, <laughs> love it. All right, Nick, what's your number four? So my number four pick, and I really have to give Jordan his due here because this would not be on my list if not for him, is Alien 3. 
Alien 3 is a movie I used to hate, hate. I hated this movie. Obviously, it kills off the nuclear family from the beloved Aliens, which is one of my favorite movies and probably my favorite from the Alien series. And you've got Ripley on this weird planet with a bunch of prisoners and everything is really dark and dreary and it's really depressing. And Jordan decided we were going to do an episode on this not too long ago. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to figure this movie out. I might not like it, but I'm going to figure it out. So I watched it like a hundred times. <laughs> yes, yeah, somewhere around a hundred times. <laughs> and maybe it just <laughs> bewitched me or hypnotized me. But I love this movie so much now. It's got really deep, complex philosophical themes. To me, coming back to it, it reminded me of the first Alien film and my experience with that back in high school and how that kind of opened up different philosophical ideas in my head, especially nihilism. And this movie really focuses on can you find meaning in a world that seems completely nihilistic and antagonistic to meaning? And you can listen to that episode. I have a one hour long monologue about philosophy where I drop like 25 philosophers names. It's not for everyone. It's my favorite episode we've done. You're not going to go into another nihilistic rant now, are you, Nick? I won't. I promise I won't. But I have to say, approaching it without my bias before, because I, you know, I think most people coming into this movie probably had as big a bias as I did, because the Aliens is such a great film and it really does not erase the ending, but it pretty much tells you right off the bat, this is not that. This is something completely different from that. And if you can buy into it and really look more deeply at the themes of the movie it's got incredible visuals from david fincher i know that he lost control of the movie sort of i don't want to use those words he he butted heads a lot with 20th century fox who just was not respecting his vision like really they should have but how could they have known that david fincher was going to become so great you know but i think he's great here i think these visuals are incredible got a great elliot goldenthal score great performances by sigourney weaver Charles S. Dutton, Charles, Charles Dance, Dan. Ralph Brown, Danny Webb. I love it. Charles, sexy, sexy Charles Dance in this movie. We noted that. A, we, we have huge crushes on him in this movie. He's so good and so sexy. <laughs> He's really good. And don't believe, Nick, you should watch the assembly cut. It is better. I totally am on board with Alien 3 as long as it's the assembly cut. Which I enjoy, and I'm not going to get into why I like the non-assembly cut just a tiny bit more. You can listen to our episode, but yeah, watch the assembly cut too. It's great. It's been a very long time since I've seen Alien 3. I, I think it probably deserves a rewatch for me as well. I'm surprised you didn't put Resurrection on there, Nick. I know you really love that one too. Go to hell, Jordan. <laughs> Damn it. He will not shut up about Resurrection. Horrible. That movie does not exist. Well, let's talk about a similar theme for my number four. It is also about an alien, although a different movie. This is from 1995, Species. Ooh, nice. Oh, I don't know why. I knew you were going to say Species. Awesome. I'm so pumped. So Species is uh, a movie about these, these uh, astronauts and scientists. They start transmitting to find life in other solar systems and galaxies, and they find these aliens that start transmitting back. And the aliens at first give us the formula for unlimited fuel supply. So, of course, they're thinking these are helpful aliens. They want to help us out. So the next transmission that they receive is formula for alien DNA and the instructions on how to splice it with human DNA. So, of course, they're, they're thinking, this is a great idea. <laughs> of course. 
and it turns out to be a great idea and the movie is really happy and no it's not uh (laughs) terrible idea so they they breed this alien and her name is sill and and they breed a female because they think that a female is going to be nicer and more docile and of course that uh, is not the case this hybrid alien births and it starts growing to a full-grown woman in just a couple of days uh, played by Natasha Henstridge, who this is her first role, I believe. Half the time she looks like Natasha Henstridge. Half the time she has these spines that grow out of her. It's like this armor-plated alien killing machine. And she has one sole purpose, and that's to breed. It is killer fun. It's got a lot of trashy scenes in it. For oh, for sure. sure. There's this thought that the aliens are kind of like a galactic weed killer. <laughs> And they they just send their DNA to these planets to kind of wipe them out. I always kind of like that. (laughs) It's got a killer cast. You got Forrest Whitaker in there. Ben Kingsley's in there. Alfred Molina, Michelle Williams. The special effects, aside from maybe the end, kind of hold up today. They were really good at the time. Uh, I always think of it as a B-movie with an A-list cast. Nice. If you like sci-fi movies from the 90s, there's a lot of stuff ripped off from like the alien series, even the ending of like Terminator two, but it's good. And there's a scene with an instant pregnancy that is just totally (laughs) worth a watch. Like, Oh, it's just good trash species from 1995. I love it. I lamented in our alien three podcast episode about how, uh, when we're, when we got into resurrection a little bit, I lamented that they didn't just get Giger's design from species and use that as like the humanoid Ripley that it was planned to be at the end. But instead we get the big gooey alien monster thing that's makes that movie terrible. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of have a a little uh, grudge against species for taking that design away from alien three. Not that I think they even planned on using that, but you know, instead of uh, Giger working on that movie, he went on to do species. So Kind of kind of a missed opportunity there. But yeah, Species is really fun. You know what other movie he didn't work on was 1985's Life Force, directed by Toby Hooper, which reminds me of Species a lot. Have you guys seen that? Oh, yeah. I tell you what, Miss Hilda May in that movie uh, gave me an awakening uh, when I was younger <laughs> that I was heterosexual. <laughs> and that's really the only positive thing I can say, other than I laughed really hard in all the parts that she wasn't in and some of the parts that she was in. <laughs> And Patrick Stewart gives the worst performance I've ever seen by anyone in that movie. It's unbelievable how bad he is considering how good he is in everything else he's in. I'm not sure if I actually have seen all of Species. I need to go and rewatch that as well. My number three is Terminator 2, Judgment Day from 1991. So talk about something else that holds up from the early 90s. This is just a behemoth of a film. Uh, this film was always on TV growing up. You couldn't help but watch it whenever you saw it. I remember, I don't know if you were there, Nick, but we were in Mexico for a mission trip when we were young teenagers. And I remember the Spanish language dub version coming on TV in our crappy hotel. And I couldn't help but watch it there either. It's just that iconic. It's action packed. It's lots of fun. And it has a lot of heart, too. I mean, you might forget this if, you know, oh, it's just, you know, big, dumb, you know, robots and whatnot. But the performances are really golden. Arnold is great, of course. But you've got Linda Hamilton. She's such a badass. And Edward Furlong, he is the perfect snarky 13-year-old kid. I just wanted to be that kid. I wanted to have a Terminator as a best friend growing up. 
Uh, he's he's really good in this. And looking at Cameron's other films, yeah, you've got the explosions, the motorcycle being chased by a Mack truck. You know, you've got all that kind of stuff here. The flesh being pulled off the robot hand and all the great effects. But for me, he always grounds his stories in a relationship. And that's what's key relationships between people and how he explores that idea of the nuclear family, like in many of his other films. But here it's the Terminator as this kind of surrogate father in a way to uh, John Connor played by Edward Furlong. It's the relationship between the kid teaching the Terminator about the world and then Arnold becoming more human. And like a lot of the films that we're going to talk about here, it's, you know, this question of what does it mean to be human? You know, what's the line between man and machine? And come on, that sacrifice at the end in the molten steel, one of the best movie endings ever. Tell me you didn't, that didn't pull out your heartstrings, make you feel alive. If not, maybe you're just not human. And you do have that nuclear family, like from aliens again. Like I think you said that in our alien three episodes, kind of Cameron's MO is to create something like that. You see that through a lot of his films, but yeah, it works really well here. You know, the ham, you know, between Lin- Linda Hamilton for long and Arnold, they're just a great team. They're a great family uh, dichotomy. Uh, you know, but then, yeah, just the fact that you have a Terminator, a robot thrown in there. And I, I rewatched the first one for the first time in a long time recently. So it was striking to be reminded how Arnold was the bad guy in the first one. And then, how you go from that to the second one and that reaction where Linda Hamilton first sees Arnold coming towards her in the uh, when she's in the uh, penitentiary or the was it the insane asylum? And then she just starts running and like grabbing at the floor as she's stripping to get away from this guy. Yeah, it's just really dynamic film. It, it holds up today. It's really great. So my number three, something that we talk about a lot on the show is that there are a lot of movies from the 90s, a decade that we don't think of as being that long ago, that you just can't watch right now. And my number three is a movie that, good luck finding it, it's not streaming, Uh, DVD is expensive, there's no Blu-ray, and I really can't believe how that's a thing, because it's directed by Oscar winner Catherine Bigelow. Speaking of James Cameron, he wrote this film. He was married to Catherine Bigelow. This movie is Strange Days. I don't even know if I said the title yet. I gave this such a winding buildup. Strange Days from 1995, starring Ralph Fiennes and also starring Angela Bassett, who is awesome in this, as is Ralph Fiennes. And a very naked Juliette Lewis. Yes, she is. There is a lot of nudity in this movie. Uh, Something that's really interesting about this film is that it's a female gaze on a lot of female nudity. This is just a really complicated movie. It's tough to even give a plot synopsis. It's a long film. It's twisty and windy. I really love it for the time period it's set in, which it's a futuristic film, but it's only four years in the future from 1995. It takes place in 1999, which is my favorite year. I love anything to do with that year, but this is just a really complex film hiding behind a lot of visual and audio bombast. You start off with this big action scene with this insane tracking shot. The movie has to do with this thing called squid, which is this basically you you attach these electrodes to your head and it records all of your memories and physical sensations from what you're experiencing. And then people buy that from you or from the dealer, who in this case happens to be Ralph Fiennes. This is, of course, illegal and very, very, very strange. But that's what the movie centers around as far as plot. 
the trouble that he gets into for being in that business. But we get into so many different topics. The craziest thing to me is how timely this movie is because central to the plot. And I'm sorry, my cat is meowing loudly in the background because I think he wants to talk about this movie too. I don't know if you guys can hear him. But central to this plot is there's a racially motivated murder halfway through the film, which is just really shocking and terrible. And it's what we're seeing on the news right now. And this film is all over that. It explores that very deeply. Catherine Bigelow said this was a movie that was more close to her heart than any other movie she's made. And it's just insane that you can't find this anywhere. It's such a good film. It was a huge flop when it came out. Maybe that's why it's hard to find now. It made $8 million, I think, on a $42 million budget. But you can't find it. Thankfully, uh, I wanted to watch it again just to make sure that it held up. And a mutual friend, or I should say Jordan's friend, he's more of an acquaintance to me, he had it, thankfully, so I could watch it again and be confident that I wanted to put it on my list. But Strange Days is my number three. Yeah, I uh, I watched this for the first time after seeing it come up on your list when we were talking about uh, putting together this top five. And my letterbox review was 1995's 1999 sure looks a lot like 2020 because, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that feels very timely in this movie, the police brutality, and then also just our obsession with media and, you know, even watching the film, like you said, the, the female gaze, it's, it's written by Cameron. So it feels like a male gaze to me, but, you know, through a female director's lens. So that it feels really strange in that way, but it's strange days. It's a strange two hours and 35 minutes. But yeah, I I love how it plays with, again, memory and the sensation of, you know, should we let go of memories? You know, Angela Bassett has a line at one point in the film where she says, you know, memories are meant to fade. They were designed that way. And that was so deep. man. That that got me as someone who holds on to the past too long. That really got me. And thank you for summing up those themes better than I did. My cat finally (laughs) left. (laughs) I don't know what he was trying to say about this movie, but yeah, that's something that's huge in this movie. And I just think about social media and how so many people are living vicariously through other people, which is really what this movie is about and the dangers of that. This movie was so prescient for being something that's 25 years old. It It's almost shocking to watch now at the time it, it felt crazy. And it was just kind of, to me watching it in the past, it was just kind of a cool movie from a time period. I enjoy that was just really well directed and had some great visual and just some, some great music, uh, like really kind of futuristic metal for the time, a lot of heavy music. But seeing the themes now, being older and watching it in present times, it's almost shocking how prescient it was. I think this is actually a very important movie. I hope people pick up on it at some point. I know not anyone is watching it now because it's not on Netflix or Hulu, but hopefully one of those networks picks it up. And shows it and people can come on to this movie because I think it's great and it needs to be seen. Like you said earlier, there's a lot of uh, nudity. There's a lot of violence in the film. And it almost makes you complicit in that. And then there's a turn at one point. So, you know, you start the film with Ray Fiennes, you know, watching these uh, previous clips of him making love uh, to Juliette Lewis and some other, you know, sexy clips that he finds or whatever. But then he stumbles upon, I guess what you'd call a snuff film of one of these clips of uh, a woman being murdered and raped. And so I guess, you know, for the, the teenager in us that was in 95, the enjoyment you might get out of those earlier scenes and some of the, like the action and the, you know, and the fun scenes and then how it turns 
in that moment where his kind of skeezy hobby of watching these things is just now freaking him out and he's got to help solve this murder. And Bigelow is just so uncompromising with that stuff. Like she's so relentless with it that if you enjoyed it before, now you're saying cut, cut, please, God, please cut. And she'll cut to Ralph Fiennes, you know, his face is just horrified. He is just totally terrified, but then it cuts back. She does not let you off the hook. It's crazy. It's just a really, really incredible film. Yeah, and the the filmmaking puts you right there, too, with the POV shots and how a lot of times, like you said, it just won't cut away. And so it, it really makes you feel complicit in those acts. So it's really great filmmaking from Bigelow. I'll have to seek this one out. I have not seen this one. And you're right. It's I've just looked it up. It's only available on Blu-ray overseas. So I guess I'll have to import that to give it a watch. It's nuts because she made it immediately after Point Break. This was her next film which we did an episode on Point Break. We love that movie, but I think this is a lot deeper of a film with obviously far more complex themes and not to knock Keanu and uh, Patrick Swayze, but man, the acting in this compared to that is also uh, leagues better. You've got uh, Tom Sizemore is really good in this too, which you know he's had some legal issues since this movie, but he's really great in this film. Sounds heavy. Yeah, I, I mean, I had some problems with the film. I think it is a little too long, but... You know, overall, it's it's really solid and the themes really help make it rise above. I'm going to go to uh, something a little less heavy for my number three. 1994's Time Cop. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As a kid, I loved Van Damme. He was he was great. You know, he's he's the quintessential martial arts action star that I wanted to be at that time. And. Time Cop is the culmination of all of his tropes. So the, the story is he's a time travel cop. So it's only a couple of years in the future, but time travel is a thing. And he's a cop who's tasked with battling political corruption. And at the same time, he's seeing how his actions in the past affect the future. And he wonders if he can also save his wife who was murdered. There's so many splits in this movie. <laughs> It's Van Damme. Come carrying them out of clothing, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. The the effects are not good in this movie. If you go back and watch it now, the way that they appear into the future, it's just like they're just coming out of thin air, out of like a, <laughs> almost like a ripple in the air. Oh, no, no. It's really fun. There's a scene in the very beginning where a guy jumps out of a window. He's supposed to bring this guy back to the future. And this guy jumps out of the window and he jumps out of the window after him to catch him in midair and then teleport back to the future while in midair. Oh, so fantastic. (laughs) That sounds amazing. I need to go rewatch that. I usually, (laughs) if there's a video game for the movie that we watch on Film Shake, I try to play it. We haven't done this movie, but I have to tell you, there is an SNES time cop game that is just atrocious. It is (laughs) unbelievably bad. Do not play it or if you like bad games play it it's also got van damme teaming with van damme at one part you get the old van damme and the young van damme oh that seems so good (laughs) it's just like a double impact except these are van dams that are totally different ages (laughs) i remember being so excited to see time cop and we walked out of the theater afterwards and my dad was pissed that he had to sit through that i was so excited because i loved it so much and i could not understand why he didn't like it i'm more of a i'm a more of a sudden death man myself but 
I have to give Tom Kaffa a rewatch. Was that the one with the bomb in the hockey rink? Yes, it is. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Good. so good. Where he plays the goalie in an actual <laughs> hockey match, and then that's he a natural leaves. fit. Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, sudden. I, that's the same director too. From um, sudden death had the same director as Time Cop. Oh great! That would be a great double feature. If you like splits, do check this out. Like you said, some of the best splits in cinema. Splits all over the place. <laughs> All right, my number two is Dark City. The visuals and the set design alone in this film just make it top tier for me. I think this was the first time I was introduced to like neo noir and you know like a neo noir sci fi thriller. Uh, it's up there with Blade Runner for me. The dark futuristic sets, the horror elements. You know, you've got the aliens inside the dead bodies grim reaper looking dudes with bowler hats it's amazing and there's a lot of mashups of styles here you've got i'm a big fan of uh, fritz lang's metropolis from 1927 and you have a lot of callbacks to that in the machinery and the set design and also in the themes you have uh you know like many sci-fi films we'll talk about uh that we've already talked about exploring memory and identity Uh, If, you know, the question here that I think is so interesting is basically if who we are is what has happened to us, our memories, then who are we when our memories are taken away? Are we inherently good or evil? You know, you know, a character in this basically wakes up next to a dead woman and he's told that he is a killer. And so, you know, going from that does he believe, you know, what he has been told about himself? Does he believe that? Does that change who he is or will who he is ultimately come forward and present itself as his true self? So awesome sci-fi themes there. Really solid. Definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. It also continues the late 90s and early 2000s obsession with putting Jennifer Connelly at the end of a pier. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Oh, and I didn't mention this, but I think it's a great precursor to the matrix you have a lot of stuff going on in this that predates the matrix and i'd say i like this better than the matrix so if that's any any incentive to go check this out then there it is i'm surprised at this point up to this point we haven't had any doubles unless uh, somebody's saving the ace up their sleeve for the number one <laughs> okay yeah this is good time so we don't have to double dip my number two is Ghost in the Shell. It's directed by Mamoru Oshii. It's based on the manga by Masamune Shiro. Uh, it's a 1995 film. It's one of the first anime films I ever saw, and I just love this movie so much. It's, again, dealing with the things that we talked about before, the nature of memory, the nature of existence, just a lot of great 90s themes with incredible animation by production IG. The story centers around Makoto, Matoko Kusanagi, who is one of my favorite protagonists in any movie. She's got almost an entirely cybernetic body, but she has a human ghost, which is sort of her mind and maybe her spirit, if such a thing exists, which is something this movie explores, because this is a future where people have cybernetically altered their bodies and their minds to a degree that a lot of people maybe aren't human anymore, or maybe never were. Maybe there are androids that were built on a factory line, It's all called into question as well, because now people's brains can be hacked. False memories can be implanted into their heads. This is a great movie. This is one of my favorite all-time movies. My top two movies, maybe in my top ten all-time movies, I love them. 
the action scenes in this movie are incredible. Really, this is a huge precursor to my number one film. I don't think my number one film would exist without this film. In fact, I almost put this at number one. It My number one film just barely edged it. But this is just a great movie. If you're interested in anything where someone is trying to find meaning, uh, the meaning of their existence, you have a protagonist here that wants to find out her so much that she literally tears herself apart to do so. It's uh, it's a great film. I don't think Jordan likes this as much as I do anymore. Um, I also have to say the Wikipedia entry for this for themes is woefully incomplete. It only focuses on gender dynamics, which are only a small part of the film. It's really this nature of existence theme that is huge. I can't believe that's the thing with Wikipedia. I always go on rants in our show and I won't do it here, except I actually am doing it now. So my apologies. <laughs> you can't go by that as gospel because it's not. It's just people like us. I edit Wikipedia entries all the time. So I, I know that say, Nick, you should go take care of that. That's right. I need to to add in some more themes here, but it's just a really deep, incredible film. It does deal with gender dynamics, too, in some really different ways. Uh, another film that I think was far ahead of its time. There's several television series that came out of this and out of the manga, which I think are solid, but not as good as this. There was a sequel to this, a direct sequel in the theater, another anime, which I also think was very good, but not as good as this. And then there was a live action remake with Scarlett Johansson that I still have not worked up the nerve to watch. Maybe one day. Yeah, when I was a kid, I had this on VHS and my mom walked in as uh, the opening credit scene is rolling with, you know, full on naked robot being made in the factory. And she's just like, what are you watching? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, mom, go away. <laughs> it's just a robot. It's, a, it's OK. She's just a robot. <laughs> It's high class sci-fi, mom. Well, the right. thing is, her body is a robot's body, but not her mind. Her mind is possibly far older than her robot body. Yeah, I rewatched this not too long ago. Like Nick said, I'm, I'm, I used to be a big fan of it. Not so much anymore. I might have to give it another rewatch at one point. But I felt like there was a lot of like the themes are really interesting, but I felt like they were really didactically told there's a lot of long monologues where the characters are just talking about what it means to be alive and things like that and then all of a sudden you've got some gnarly animation and uh you know guns and tanks and stuff blowing up so i don't know i feel like it could have been better told i do like the themes but it's uh, a little too many naked anime characters for me i will fight you it's only an 82 minute film it breezes by these are beings who are wondering about their existence and if they're real or not. So, of course, they're having some little monologues, Jordan. It's not like they drone on and on. It's, it's great. Don't listen to Jordan. He's wrong. This is a great movie. It still holds up. And there's also some other themes here, like I said, with memory. But also now we're getting to a point where we're almost to this kind of technology in certain ways. As far as brain augmentation, this stuff, also, it all used to seem very far away. But I think we're getting closer to this, which is a really scary thought. You know, we've got all this stuff where, you know, people we get like these online robberies where people are holding information ransom. Now, that's going to be memories one day, I think. I think that's what this movie tells me. And I'm going to go along with it because I love this movie. I haven't seen Ghost in the Shell since oh, it's probably been the late 90s. I think it probably deserves a rewatch from me. But Nick, you talking about what it has influenced I'm pretty sure we have the same number one. I was hoping that maybe we would and we can just both talk about it. Jordan does not have this for his number one. He's a hater on this like he is on Ghost in the Shell. I'm not a hater. Come on. All right. What do you got? 
<laughs> we'll head to my number two here. Uh, my number two is one that you have covered on your show. This is from 1993, Demolition Man. Nice. When you're talking about Strange Days and you're saying that certain things from that film are uh, oddly relevant today, I think there's a lot of stuff in Demolition Man, as silly as it is, that are also relevant today. Completely. Yeah, totally agree. You've got a world where people are comfortable with casual racism. You've got a world where you can't find toilet paper anywhere. (laughs) You've got video calls happening all the time. You've got a police force that is embarrassingly untrained. You've got a government with the technology to monitor people's movements. And you've got people that are afraid to touch each other with the fear of transmitting deadly diseases. So there are so many things here that, that you can draw comparisons to today. The basic story is Wesley Snipes plays this character named Simon Phoenix, who is one of the most recognizable villains, I think, of the 90s. He's got this ridiculous yellow hair. Yeah, Dennis Rodman thought it was cool, too, because he he copied that hairstyle. Yeah, he basically did. And then he played Simon in Simon Says. Yes. (laughs) I think he's a fan, maybe. He is like this really bad dude who is cryogenically frozen in 1996. And then he's unfrozen for a parole hearing, like, I don't know, 50 years later. And uh, then he escapes from that parole hearing to a future that is ill-equipped to handle him. So they have to unfreeze a guy named John Spartan, played by Sylvester Stallone, who brings the 90s into 2032. And it is, it's insane. There's so many quotable lines. There are so many ideas that are really funny, like the three seashells that I think everybody knows. Uh, The swear machines where you, you swear and then you get a ticket for it. And then uh, how John Spartan uses that as toilet paper since there's no toilet <laughs> paper. Classic. You've got uh, Taco Bell is the only restaurant, which is uh, number one, just crazy product placement. But number two, just really funny idea. It's one that I, I rewatched recently and two things stuck out. Number one, it, this movie has the dumbest sound effects of all time. Yes, <laughs> it's Looney Tunes. The other thing that sticks out to me is Sandra Bullock. It's like one of my favorite roles of hers. She's such a, she's so cute in the movie. She's called her a puppy dog in our episode. Yeah, she is. She is. She's a puppy. She's so great. So good. The performances are crazy. Uh, Snipes is incredible as Simon Phoenix. When when you think of the title Demolition Man, I actually think that it is Snipes because he's the one that's just destroying everything. (laughs) I never thought about it being open-ended like that. That's a great point. It's got the 90s trope that you talked about in your episode with gasoline cans everywhere. Red gasoline cans that don't exist in real life, but for some reason exist in every movie. They're all over the place here. And there's barrels of C4 in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I need a C4 barrel stat. You don't have C4 barrels at your house? Uh, I mean, I do after watching Demolition, man. (laughs) Jordan stocked up, man. He's ready to go. Getting ready for that future. (laughs) This movie's the epitome of delightful trash. I can watch it at any point, but I know in my mind it's just it's not good. It's not a good movie, but I love it so much. Come on. Sylvester Stallone kicking the head off of a frozen Wesley Snipes. That's not good. <laughs> it's shattering on the ground into a thousand pieces. Yeah, Jordan picked up I had kind of felt the same way that it was trashy, and I still think it's kind of trashy, but Jordan did pick up on a lot of themes that I, I have to say I missed in this movie. I love that they talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger going on to become the president 
after they've created an amendment to allow people from other countries to run for office. And this was before he was the governor, you know, so again, very ahead of its time. The Schwarzenegger Presidential Library. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so my number one, this is my pick that is a little off the beaten path as far as sci-fi goes, but this is 1999's Being John Malkovich, written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Spike Jones. So a lot of the other films on my list are, you know, more schlocky than this. Uh, this is a film where you've got John Cusack, Carmen Diaz, Kathleen, Kathleen Keener, John Malkovich, of course, and I feel like they're all giving some of the best performances in their career. Really terrific, weird performances that are outside of their comfort zones, especially for Cusack and Diaz. Uh, Cusack plays the schlubbiest of stand-ins for Charlie Kaufman. He's a greasy, lank-haired, unsuccessful puppeteer. And he gets a job working in this strange building where they discover a portal into actor John Malkovich's head where you can look behind his eyes and see and feel the world from his point of view for 15 minutes. And then you're spit out onto the New Jersey turnpike, which is just a great moment. You never get tired of seeing these people just fall out of the sky into a ditch next to the New Jersey turnpike. Uh, so yeah, kind of in looking back at strange days, like we were talking about, you know, reliving memories and the themes that that film plays with. This film, uh, thinking about it after watching Strange Days, it really boosts it to where, you know, the question here is what if you could become this other person, this celebrity for 15 minutes? And eventually, what if you could take over their body and control them and use their notoriety to boost your failing puppeteer career? Uh, so it has one of the strangest plots of any of these movies. It's completely inventive, though. Uh, I think it's funny. It's heartbreaking, it's disturbing, and it's cerebral. And that's everything I want in a sci-fi film, or really just a film in general. Uh, you know, and the ideas of artistry here, the ambition of being an artist, uh, that make it really an interesting installment in the genre. Uh, you don't see that played with, I feel like, a whole lot in, you know, sci-fi films. And again, this is a, you know, off the beaten path sci-fi film. You've got a tunnel into another person's head, but Otherwise, it's, you know, pretty straight up modern day. But, you know, the, these questions of how we perform for others uh, when Craig Cusack's character goes inside Malkovich and he takes over how that becomes this artistic performance as well for him. You know, the puppeteer, he turns Malkovich into a puppeteer, but he's also puppeteering Malkovich. So it's yeah, it's really strange. But uh, yeah, really great film. And I would argue the best film from 99, maybe the best film from the 90s. I don't know. I really wow. love it. Strong words there, buddy. And it's also a prequel to Get Out. So <laughs> <laughs> fan, the, the fan theories are out there, my friends. <laughs> That's excellent. This is a great pick. I didn't even think about this movie, and I love this movie. That's a great pick. Tell me of another debut from a debut writer and a debut director that is this strong. And I don't know if they've made a film this good since, but it's got to be one of the greatest you know, debut films ever made. Being John Malkovich. Well, Nick, I think that we have the same number one. So go ahead and knock this one out and I'll fill in when needed. Believe it or not, I wrote detailed notes for every movie up to this one. But this one I just started. I decided to just go from the heart. Yes, my number one is, I'm sure like yours, Jason, 
The Matrix. I love this movie so much, which is weird because, again, this is another one. Right when I saw it the first time, I wasn't that high on it. I thought it was just a ripoff of Ghost in the Shell. The visuals were very similar, and it took me a little while to appreciate it. But when I started to appreciate it, I really started to appreciate it. And I went back and watched it again about a week ago for the first time in a long time, and I just enjoyed it even more. I don't even know how. I think for me, there's this thing. It's a French term called fin de cycle that revolves around the you know panic that humans feel at the end of a millennium. And it's a concept that's been written about a lot. I think it's one that we think about more whenever we went from 999 to 1000, but it's a thing for 1999 to 2000 as well. And, you know, we had Y2K going, but I just had this feeling late in high school and I couldn't shake it that things just felt wrong. Everything just seemed wrong. The system seemed broken. Everything seemed pointless, almost like machines were running things. And I was just plugged into some tube somewhere and a battery for them. And then this movie just comes out and tells you, yeah, that's what's going on. They stole your idea. (laughs) They did. They stole my idea. Just all that disaffected feeling. It's all in this movie early on and it's great. And then we get into other stuff as well. I really, Jason, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. When I watched it in 99, I didn't really pick up on the whole religion aspect of it because I was so wrapped up in the action and the innovation that went into the action, specifically camera shots like the bullet time camera shot, which is famous now and has been parodied a million times. The helicopter scene, uh, you know, I was so wrapped up in that that I didn't even think about the religion aspect of it, which as now, as I've gotten older and I've watched it, I kind of focus on that more than I do the action. Although, I, you know, the action, I think, still stands up. It's just a really great layered sci-fi movie with things that in 99 we had never seen before. There's still things that I think of today, you know, when you have... How many of you think about The Matrix when you have one of those deja vu moments? Oh, with the cat. Yes. I was thinking that when my cat was meowing a minute ago. Why didn't why didn't he come for The Matrix? It would have fit better. He comes (laughs) back. I'll know for a fact that we are in The Matrix. I love this film. It's one of my favorite sci fi movies of all time, not just of the 90s. Yeah, it's incredible. Awesome. Um, I think it's just an iconic film with iconic scene after iconic scene, iconic dialogue. I hate you know, that we kind of think of the lexicon in more political terms as far as, you know, getting red pilled now. I hate that that got taken and stolen to be used that way, which is a huge bummer because I think in the film, it's a lot heavier of a metaphor. You know, I, I know that the Wachowskis have said now that they realize as they watch it, that it was a closeted trans metaphor. um, But I don't think that was actually their intention when they were making it. And I think the beauty of this movie is that you can put so much into it of your own meaning. The framework there is just so brilliant, but yet so open that really any meaning of kind of an awakening or just opening your eyes to a different reality, you can put into it and it doesn't denigrate the movie at all to do so, which I think is awesome. I will say, if you watch this film now, either watch your old DVD or try to find one of the prints of the film that wasn't redone after the other two Matrix films, because initially this film has just a really awesome, badass, uh, late 90s cinematography. It's just a beautiful film to look at. But after the second and third Matrix films, which made Inside the Matrix more green tinted, you know, they use more green filters and stuff for that. 
they went back and recolored the original film for the scenes inside the matrix. And it's just kind of gross compared to how beautiful the original print is. And I think there may be some newer versions where they've kind of toned that down, but if you're watching it and you're thinking this doesn't look as good as I remember it looking and you're watching like some 4k version, make sure that it's not one that's been recolored because it really does affect the visuals heavily. It's like Han Solo not shooting first anymore, except with the color green. <laughs> now I I rewatched this uh, recently and I would agree it's a really beautiful looking film and the visual effects and action and fight choreography and everything are still really strong. It, it did go down for me a little bit. Um, I, I think the concept still feels really fresh and I love the world building. All of that is, is really fascinating. And I think they do a great job of building tension throughout uh, and the characters are really iconic and all that. The only thing that stuck out for me was the romantic element felt a really out of place and misused. I, I didn't care for that. And then the day X machina a la magical sleeping beauty kiss was just a little much for me. Uh, it felt like it kind of devolved it into this mushy fairy tale and it was a little too on the nose with the religious iconography. So um, I really wanted to know more about what it means to be the one, but then I'd have to watch the two terrible sequels. So <laughs> I think I'll just stay with this. And I gave it a three and a half out of five. I'll defend the second movie. I think it's got some really good moments. I enjoy some of the philosophical stuff. I can't really defend the third one too well outside. It's got some cool special effects. And Jordan, I, I can see what you mean with the ending. I, for me, I think it's important that that happens because he's got this human connection. Even though he's the one, it's his human connection there that kind of brings him back to life and allows him to really just decode the Matrix completely and stop the billets and destroy Agent Smith. So I, I can see that. I mean, it is a little schmaltzy, um, but it doesn't bother me. I actually I, I think it's important to the movie, but I can see your point of view there. I will also uh, defend the second one with Nick. I think that the second one has one of the best action scenes of all time with the freeway scene. Oh, man. The third one is undefendable. Yeah, I, I agree. The uh, the score by Juno Reactor during that freeway chase scene, I could listen to on a loop for the rest of my life. And that, that scene is so great. I really, th there's so many elements of that movie I enjoy. I know the big burly brawl scene where I've referenced it sometimes in Phil Shake whenever someone touts special effects and they don't measure up. You know, the, the all the Agent Smiths are rendered badly. That that scene doesn't hold up, but so they much like of the bad PlayStation 2 graphics. Exactly, yeah, like bad PlayStation 2 graphics. But so much of the rest of the action is incredible, and I really did enjoy the scene with the architect at the end and that twist. I just don't like what they did with it in the third movie. I don't think I've seen the second film since the theater, so... I think I'm you were with me for that one. Maybe so. I might have to go back and give it another shot just to see some of those action scenes. Now everybody has 14 really great sci-fi movies to watch. Well, maybe 13. I would say Time Cop, but, you know. <laughs> it's still worth a watch. Well, thanks for talking 90s movies with me. Um, why don't you tell us about your 90s show and just kind of give us your elevator pitch for Film Shake, the 90s movie podcast. Jordan? Nick? <laughs> <laughs> so Film Shake for us, it's a 90s movies podcast, but I think something that's really important to both of us is that there are certain movies that maybe even ones that we talked about tonight, like Jurassic Park, that are just really well-known, very well-respected movies. You don't really hear anything negative about them. 
we would probably cover The Lost World on Film Shake before we would cover Jurassic Park because that movie's bad. And it's not that we cover bad movies. It's that we like to have some bad in there with the good. We like to have something a little more unexpected because at the end of the day, there's a million Jurassic Park podcasts, right? How many Lost World podcasts are there? Jordan, I'm trying to sell you on us doing Lost World, by the way, with this pitch. Oh, yeah. We're, we have to cover it at some point. I, that's another one that I don't think I've seen since the theater. It's infuriating. It's an infuriating film, Jordan. Yes. If you haven't picked up yet, Nick is our angry old man on Film Shake. He, <laughs> he likes to bring in these movies and then just, yeah, complain about them. But yeah, we have. <laughs> I always have my own picks and I like Jordan's picks. It makes no sense. It's like I hate myself and love Jordan. <laughs> maybe this is the truth being exposed no but yeah we like to we like to cover anything from the terrible to the awesome but it's usually uh, a mixed bag of both in one film so that's our sweet spot so we did things like demolition man total recall we tried to go there with alien three but then we just both really loved that film so <laughs> yeah sometimes it works out like that cool so go listen to some 90s movies with Film Shake, you can find this anywhere you get your podcasts, I'm guessing. Yes, sir. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, you can reach out to us on follow us on Twitter at 90s Movies Pod and on Facebook as well. So, yeah, love to have you guys come check out our show. Well, go check out that show. And for this show, anybody can be a guest. The only requirement is that you love movies. So if you have a five list that you want to tackle with me, Email me directly at force5podcast at gmail.com or head to the website force5podcast.com, which has a show request form and other Force 5 related content. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and watch movies. What I need is a woman who can think and fight and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Force 5.